This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. So, what are we talking about today? Today we are reading Showdown at Centerpoint, the third and final book in the Corellian Trilogy, written by Roger McBride Allen and published by Phantom Spectra in October 95. This is Alan's third and final Star Wars book, and it came out a few months after Assault at Salonia. The only book published between these two was Tales from the Most Isolated Cantina. Darksaber, Rogue Squadron, Tales from Jabba's Palace, and Before the Storm were the next books published after Showdown at Centerpoint. Showdown at Centerpoint picks up mostly where Assault at Salonia left off, though there are a few surprises. Han is back on the cone ship, helping Drachmas land on Salonia, while Leia is still on the Jade's Fire, watching and hoping it all goes smoothly. Spoiler. It doesn't. The Bakuran fleet is approaching Centerpoint, hoping another repulsor doesn't attack them, while Anakin continues to fiddle with the repulsor that they found on Drawl. So far, you've really enjoyed this series. How are you feeling going to the final book of the trilogy? Still pretty good, but also kind of nervous. Like, I mean, first of all, I'm just a naturally nervous person. <laughs> Even for things that don't really matter, like books. But second of all, I felt like, oh boy, we're heading into, like, you know, the final installment. Landings are hard to stick. I don't know who's behind, who's the entity, like the hand behind the Human League and all of the um, various rebel groups. And I feel like we just, I I don't know if it's going to be satisfying, that particular ending. But I was still hopeful. How about you? Um, How many times have you read this one and were you looking forward to revisiting it? Like the first two, I've read this book several times, and I was very much looking forward to revisiting it. Not every reveal in this book works, but the ones that do work, I think, work so well that they far outweigh the parts that... It's not that I don't like them, I just don't love them. Yeah. So, I still think this is a, a really good book, a really good series, a really good trilogy. And, like I said in the last one, I don't actually know which one is my favorite or least favorite of them, because they all... I think are pretty consistent for the most part. This one might have the most up and down of the three, but the ups are just so great. Yeah, it would be hard for me to decide which one among the three I like best, too. They just work so well together, yeah, also. Yeah, like, together, they only really feel like a complete story when they're together, which makes sense for a trilogy. And there are so many POV characters that picking one book, especially for a particular POV character that you like, would be challenging because, like, any individual person doesn't get a ton of screen time, air quotes, per book because yeah. there are so many POV characters. I think, like you'd mentioned the other night, like, Kalinda probably got the most time in the first book, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have great moments in this book. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of hard. These ones, it's really hard to look at them separately. Yeah, like so, sometimes in the trilogy, I think like the original trilogy is a great example. You can separate them out and look at them individually. But these there are so intricately tied together. So what's on the cover of this one? We got to have a tagline, first of all, which Ooh. I'm just like choosing to ignore these at this point because I don't like them. <laughs> what <laughs> but, does this one say? says Han Solo battles the galaxy's most powerful weapon, which is really uh, incorrect on so many levels because Han personally doesn't feel super duper involved in this book. I mean, he's involved in the final fights, but just as one of many ships that are. Yeah. Like spoilers for most of the book, he sits on his butt on Salonia waiting for the Salonians to stop arguing with each other. Anakin would have been a better name to put there. Yeah. 
but this is supposed or, to be the Corellian trilogy, and it was supposed to be more about Han. That that actually might be my one my, my biggest complaint, maybe. Yeah, he is very present and a huge part of the first book. In the second book, he's playing crawl through the tunnels. In this book, he's sitting on his butt. Yeah, it feels like his involvement tapers off. Maybe that's why that cone ship. We can get to this, but we get to. I think it's why the cone ship's such a big part. That's one of his biggest parts of the book. I guess, but does it have like that much of an impact on the overall plot? Question mark. And then the second thing I have to take issue with is the galaxy's most powerful weapon. I mean, I know that somebody in a marketing department somewhere came up with this tagline. It was not the author. I don't think it's the galaxy's most powerful weapon. Okay, I suppose. What would be more powerful than it? I don't know. I mean. If they added the caveat in known existence, I would maybe agree with it. Or maybe they mean that it's still in existence because Death Stars are gone, Sun Crusher's gone, Galaxy Gun is gone. Galaxy Gun is the one I was thinking of and the Sun Crusher. But I don't know. I just don't. I don't think anybody should. This maybe is a me thing. I think it's a mistake to wave around a superlative like this. It just feels too like it feels too final. Yeah, you don't. Got, you don't agree with me. I can tell. They've got like ten words. They do this all the time in nineties books. It's kind of whatever to me. Like I said, somebody in some marketing department came up with this, and it is not. It, it's it's much like a trailer. It's totally meaningless. How about the rest of the cover? We've got just pretty much everybody on the cover, from top to bottom slash back to front, because like. Mm-hmm. We've got Chewie, we've got Han clearly wearing his, like, uh, Moon of Endor gear. We've got Leia wearing her Moon of Endor hairstyle. Um, Luke and Lando are near the bottom and the front, and then 3PO and R2 below them. And the Falcon is off to the right, just sort of, like, flying. And there's, like, an explosion in the background. And 3PO is, again, on the spine and the back cover, which I still do not understand. <laughs> you know, no one looks like they've aged. What's since, aging in Star Wars? Since Return of the Jedi, even though it's been, like, 13 freaking years. <laughs> I can, I know I complain about that every time. I'm sorry if it's redundant, but I just think that they they could have paid the artist a little bit more to, like, think that through once we get into the 2000s you will start seeing some of the mage is what i'll say yeah you'll see little speckles of gray in their hair Mm -hmm. i've seen those covers (laughs) they don't look like people aging i'm sorry han's face should be so much more like he's 40 at this point should we get to it yep so han is back on the cone ship apparently the estonians just can't afford to lose it because it is valuable technology to them, despite the hunk of junk it is. So he has volunteered to help them land it. I know in the intro you said that there were a few surprises with where we picked up, but I personally didn't find this surprising. No, I was kind of surprised he was back on the coast. I thought they would all go down happily on the Jade's Fire. I didn't think the Salonians were going to go down on the Jade's Fire. Okay. Because they seem weirdly attached to this hunk of junk cone ship. Leia and Mara are safely aboard the Jade's Fire. And to Han, he didn't really have a choice in the matter. Without him, there's no way they could play it safely, so he feels he owes it to Drachmas and the Slonians. So, he's doing some last-minute repairs before they attempt to land. They took spare parts off of Mara's ship to help, and those seem to be doing the trick. He sees the Jade's Fire watching closely, and he wishes he were on it, but they're going to follow and land next to the cone ship. Assuming all goes well. Han tells Drachmas to stop pacing and take your seat. Also, he's taking over until they land. She says this is robbery of the worst kind. 
And he says it's more like piracy or hijacking. Mild hijacking. She realizes that he's right and agrees. And she tells Sokol to listen and do whatever Han says. And this actually reminds me of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more like guidelines. <laughs> Han has put to rest most of his reservations about Mara, but not all. Gotta always hold some back. He also considers taking over piloting duties from Salkold, but decides against it because the ship was designed with a Salonian in mind. He probably wouldn't be able to reach everything as quickly as she can. As they are starting, he sees a signal from Leia. They're using um, Mon Cal blink signaling, I, I believe. The signaling basically says they're under attack, so this has already gone poorly. Leia is not happy that Han is on the cone ship, but knows she couldn't talk him out of it. Mara reassures Leia, says that they can offer more protection than Leia thinks she can. Mara also complains about the pilot of the cone ship, says she doesn't know how to fly, and yeah, that's accurate. It's true. Mara spots trouble and tells Leia to get the weapons and shields ready, and Leia sends a blink code to the cone ship as the battle begins. Han only gets part of the message, but it's enough for him to know that trouble is here. Leia sees a cloud of debris come off the cone ship. It hits the fighters chasing it, and Leia says that Han's trick worked. He had spent half a day gathering enough scrap together to make sure that this trick would work. It was the only thing that they could do to have the cone ship help in a fight at all. The fighters had rear shields up to protect against the Jade's fire, so they were completely unprepared for the debris field that they flew straight into. It's basically like a bunch of nuts and bolts and buckets and, like, random pieces of metal. <laughs> and I kind of love this plan. Like, this is a very Hansel plan. There's no weapons. What can I do? I can throw scrap metal at you. And not just throw it at them. Like, the only way that this is accomplished is by spinning the cone ship and then throwing all the airlock doors open yeah. and just sort of... <laughs> Like a letting it go, like a wild debris throwing sprinkler in space. <laughs> it reminds me actually a little bit of in Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade when a Henry Jones Senior sends all the birds into the jet fighter and it crashes because of that. Oh yeah, I vaguely remember that. Sucks for the birds. Yeah, it does. This is a little, a lot more humane, except for the people who are on the uh, in the, the fighters. But they're they're the bad guys. They're, I mean, they're attacking. They're attacking. They knew what they were getting into. <laughs> Unfortunately, because of this maneuver, the lateral attitude control system isn't working, so Han goes to fix it. The cone ship did take some damage in the fight, and Leia can see it from where she is. And she wants help, but there's nothing she can do from the Jade's fire. She's like, hey, Mark, would you like to get a tractor beam? And Mara's like, no, they're just going to pull us down to the sh surface and we'll all die. <laughs> I do want to say that a funny thing that I had written in my notes from the section was just Han's trick to throw garbage at them works. <laughs> of course it does. Like, it's just funny because he does have a history of just like being in the garbage somehow. Like when they float away with the garbage from the Star Destroyer in Empire. And then I do hope when they're in the garbage chute. Yeah, like it's just all about garbage with him. Han takes over piloting and tries to slow their descent as much as possible. He's like, it's bad enough. I am going to take over, even though I yeah. shouldn't. Salkold can't do this. No. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this, but I have a better chance than this Salonian who, like, doesn't know anything. Who's a bad pilot. Anything. <laughs> he watches the altimeter as they get closer to the planet. It gets to zero, and they are still falling, <laughs> but he wonders how accurate it is. They get to 50 meters, and that's when they hit the ground. Somehow, they are all alive, and thankfully they landed in Chanzari Land, who are allies of the Hunchuzik Den. And the Jade's fire just kind of calmly lands next to them. It's funny, actually. They land in, like, a pond, and all the water 
splashes out and so like they're sunk in this mud and stuff it's a pretty like harrowing descent given i don't know like you think that was like 50 pages at least 20 or 30 it was like a lot of the 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 book thus far yeah and this also was probably han's most exciting moment of the book which i so like we said earlier one of our few criticisms of this book is how it was 40 pages (laughs) how little Han is in this book. And I, so I think that's why they kept this in because there, there are parts of this book that could use a little more time and space and probably this would be what you would cut for that. But I think this stayed in so Han gets more to do. I think I just would have moved the pieces around the board earlier. Like sure, Han comes to Salonia, but I wouldn't have let him and Leia and Mara sit there for so long as I think my my complaint. I wanted them to go like... Do stuff sooner? Yeah, like like they land, they have the jade spire. Like, I I wish they, I almost wish that they would have given up on the Salonians and just gone to center point, like left Drachmas to do whatever with the Salonians, and gone to center point station to like be part of the excitement there. Tendra has sent what info she can to Lando, but the Bakurans keep asking for more. She is still months away from Corellia at sublight speed. The Bakuran fleet is approaching center point station. Bakura Intelligence refers to Tendra as Source T. Kalenda wants hard numbers from her, but Tendra doesn't have any. Lando says if not for Tendra, then they would have no knowledge of any ships out there at all. So he's done asking Tendra for more. She's told them what she knows. Luke adds, the more messages sent, the more likely she's detected. Kalenda asks how. They aren't using codes or encryption, but if anyone is scanning for signals, they'll hear the messages too. If the people controlling the interdiction field detect her, they could drop it fast, send a ship to destroy her, and then put it back up before anyone is the wiser. Glenda knows that Luke is right, but the stakes are so high that she had to try. Center point looks deserted, but it's so large it's impossible to say. So they're going to send a small team in. Lando, Gariel, Glenda, and 3PO will head over in the Lady Luck, while Luke and R2 will go over in his X-Wing. And Glenda asks why Gariel is coming to the station with them, because she has no combat expertise or experience. She's kind of the the odd duck on this mission, if you will. And Gariel says that she has other skill sets besides shooting and flying. Maybe there'll be someone to negotiate with on the station. To which Lander replies, we're going to have to get really lucky for that to happen. So far, we haven't found many people who are particularly reasonable in this star system. True facts. <laughs> Luke feels good being back in his X-Wing, but the idea of a spinning space station is disconcerting to him. He can see it slowly spinning to simulate gravity. It's fair. You would hate our galaxy, Luke. <laughs> Kalenda spots a blinking light. They all decide to head there. Like, oh, maybe it's a welcome sign? <laughs> Q9 watches Anakin carefully as the child opens a panel on the wall. He is recording everything that Anakin is doing. The panel makes a chime, and Q9 tells Anakin to stop for now, and Anakin is surprised that Q9 is there. And Anakin says, he almost got it working. And Q9 asks if Anakin knows what it does. And Anakin's like, no? And Q9's like, well, what what happened the last time you just pushed a button? And apparently the last time Anakin pushed a button without knowing what was happening, a trap door opened under Q9, directly to a waste disposal chute. Thankfully, he had repulsors and was able to not fall down, but if it was anyone else, you know, Jason and Jaina would have been bye-bye. I think that was on purpose. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I think Anakin was trying to drop Q9 into the waste disposal chute. I don't think so. I think he's too much of the absent-minded genius in this book to have any idea what it, that anyone else is there. I think it was on purpose. All right. The twins are getting bored with this whole process. There's nothing to do at the camp they've set up. 
They are eating survival rations for food, and they're pretty gross. Yeah, they just... What are we doing here? Anakin thinks about the panel that he found. He knows he can make it work. He wakes up in the middle of the night with a revelation and goes back to the panel. He knows exactly how to make it work and starts pushing buttons. A whole complicated console rises out of the floor. Anakin sits down in the chair and it starts adapting to his body. He knows he's going to wake the system up, so he grabs a handle. It reshapes itself to fit his hand. A button forms in front of him, and he pushes it. Ah, uh, seven-year-olds. Also, this technology, kind of terrifying, but it's like literally molding itself to his body. It is interesting, just because like it's so old. Yeah. So it's surprising that it's able to do this. All of a sudden, lightning flares up around the Falcon, and Chewie is thrown from his bed. He quickly gets everyone on board, including Q9, who has become inert and lifeless because of the power surge. Oops. He's about to go looking for Anakin, but Jason says, no, 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 he is safe. He feels his brother in the force and says that Anakin is scared he'll get in trouble for this, but not scared of it. So Chewie has a debate with himself and decides to stay in. If something does happen to Anakin, his life will be forfeit. He gets the shields up on the Falcon and figures it's better than nothing. And that's kind of a, a rough thing to think like, well... I die if I go out there. If I don't go out there, if he's okay, I'm okay. But if he's not okay, I I can't live anymore. Life debts, man. I feel like at some point, relatively recently, Han said something about like the life debt has been more than satisfied at this point, but like Chewie just is hanging on to it. Yeah. I feel like that's accurate. Well, to him, it is a life debt. It doesn't yeah. expire. Whereas to Han's like, you've saved my life so many times, it's okay. <laughs> So everything outside of the Falcon catches on fire, including March's hover car. Sad. Thankfully, the energy flows over the shields and doesn't try to penetrate them. Jason realizes the ceiling is opening up above them. Rut-row. Thraken thinks about getting drunk, dear old Sal Solo. There's little else he can do besides wait, and he never and he's never been good at that. The Human League was forced to abandon their underground bunker after Han and Drachmas got away. And they are still looking for Corellia's planetary pulsar. He's also upset that Leia got away too, but he is happy that at least Governor General or Campbell Lecto is dead. Nice guy, Thraken. Thraken thinks to himself that he knows what's really going on. He claims to control the Starbuster plot, but actually he doesn't. He knows those behind it have double-crossed them all. General Urar tells Thraken that the Drawl planetary pulsar has just come alive. And Thraken doesn't believe the Drawlists were able to do it because they are even more of a mess than the Corellian, the Human League is. So, Thraken's like, you know what? We're going to go there, find out what's going on, and cap- capture ourselves a repulsor. Luke and Lando debate whether to go through the airlock or not. The station feels too big to Lando. Luke senses only one mind on board and says that they should go ahead and go in. Lando reluctantly agrees. Yeah, Lando's like, I can't think of why there'd be a space station this big. There's no purpose to it. It's not a theme park, it's not a place to live in, it's not a gambling den, like it's too big for any one thing. Why is it here? I don't like it. It gives them the heebie-jeebies. It's here so that Talos and Trellis can orbit around it. There you go. Just keep telling yourself that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the intruder, one of the Bakuran warships, picks up a massive repulsor burst from Drawl. Ostelage knows he'll need to investigate it, but he can't abandon the team on center point. He decides the intruder will go to draw alone. Sentinel and Defender will stay at the station. The landing deck of Centerpoint is full of debris. Lando says that looks like folks left in a hurry. They land and exit their ships, and a nervous-looking woman comes out to meet them. Her name is Jenica Sansom, the Centerpoint Chief Operations Officer, Administration and Operations. 
She runs the place these days and is happy to give them a brief tour, starting with Hollowtown. It's an open space in the exact center of the central sphere. She doesn't know the jamming or the interdiction field are coming from center point, or rather, at this point, centered on center point, because we still don't know it's coming from here. She mentions a flare, but they don't know anything about that. She says, what you've got to understand about this place is that no one understands it. We just live here. And I think that line, more than anything else in this book, you hate it so much. Yeah, just there's just a certain lack of curiosity implied there. Well, not even the lack of curiosity, but just like, you were like, I would never live with a place that I didn't. Of course not. Like, you're not going to catch me living in space, period, pretty much. I mean, technically, Earth is in space. We don't... <laughs> Look, I'm getting listener. <laughs> I live in atmosphere. <laughs> I live down the gravity well. I don't live in space. Okay. You fool. <laughs> You're not going to catch me living on a spaceship okay. that is in space. You're not going to catch me living on a space station that's in space. Period. Let alone one that is millennia old. Nobody knows how it works. And they just li- like they just live there hoping nothing happens to them. That is not the setting for a person with serious anxiety. <laughs> that's that's all. <laughs> also, this woman, like, she comes out to meet them. And they're all kind of, like, ready for a, I don't know, like an argument or a confrontation. And at the end of their first conversation, Gariel's like, we're here to take control of the station. And Sansen is like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, I would love to get out of here. Thank you so much for coming to relieve me. And Gariel's like, you're, what? <laughs> Sansen says they thought they knew what most of the station did until terrorists showed up a few weeks back and started showing them new tricks. She doesn't know who they are or what group they're with. They haven't actually said anything about themselves. Someone started messing with the glow point, which is an artificial sun in Hollowtown. No one actually controls it, and they don't even know where the power for it comes from. And people live there. Or rather, lived past tense. Because as they get to Hollowtown, she points out the glow point, which is back to normal now. But a little while ago, Hollowtown was burned to a crisp by this glow point. The lake boiled dry. It's a terrifying, nightmarish place now that once must have looked lovely, but no longer. Like people had farmland here, they had beautiful villas. There's a community. It was here. like a whole fake, like it was a, a whole town. fake, like seaside village or whatever. And now it's dust. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. It's backwards. I know, but you said dust first, so I went with it. The first flare was 30 or 40 days ago, before the jamming had even started. Kalinda says she arrived in system around then, but hadn't heard anything about this. Sansen says that they tried to keep it quiet because they figured the terrorists wanted publicity. So there was no official news, but refugees did eventually spread the word. So far, there's only been one other flare, and it happened shortly after the jamming and interdiction field came on. Lando asks if the glow point is the exact center of the station, and she says yes. Lando thinks he's figured out what's going on, but Sansen is skeptical of this newcomer who shows up as like, Like, no. after a few minutes, is like, yeah, I know what's happening here. She's like, we investigate. Like, we've looked into this. We don't know what's People going on. People in millennia don't know what's going on. And Lando's like, no, I know what's going on. <laughs> Sometimes you do need an outsider's perspective. Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. R2 interrupts and asks if the flares were sudden or if there was a buildup. 
Sansen says there was a gradual buildup each time. 3PO says visible light output from the glow point has increased 6% in the last five minutes, so it's looking like we're heading for another one of these suckers. <laughs> We've talked a lot how there's a lot of just harrowing moments in this series, and coming up shortly I think is the most well-done, terrifying moment, full stop, and this is just such a great beginning to it. I'm Also at this point, I didn't really strongly feel this way because she was so just sort of spacey, but... I felt like I should be suspicious of Sansen. I think rightfully so, yeah. Because the first thing she wants to do is take them to Hollowtown, and then as soon as they get there, like, the glow point starts. But she's with them. I know, but, like, there are suicide bombers. Like, who knows what things she's been manipulated or brainwashed into doing. Anakin is hiding, worried that he'll get in trouble for pushing the button. Jason calls for him and eventually is able to get him to come out. And Anakin says that he misses mom and dad in a really just sad, sweet scene between the two brothers. Poor kid. Yeah. They get back to the ship, and Anakin apologizes. He didn't mean to hurt anyone. And Marcha knows she doesn't believe this, but she says, of course, it will all be all right. And Anakin bursts into tears and hugs her. Sansa is driving the Turbovator car as fast as it can go, but it's not fast enough for Lando's taste. It's starting to get warm inside the car. Sansen says they are five minutes to the exit, but there is a problem. There's an airlock. It got jammed after the second flare. She's fixed it, but she's not sure how well it will hold through another flare. If it's closed, there's a small personnel door for them to use instead, but there's no breathable air outside. It's all been burned away. If they need to, Sansen and Lando will go to open the door. She knows how to open it, and he has toxic air training from his time at Cloud City. I love this detail so much. Like, Bespin was all about mining gases, right? So, of course, the administrator would have some kind of toxic air training. And I just love that Alan thought of this and then brought it into the story in a really interesting way that fits perfectly. Yeah. They get to the exit and predictably the door doesn't open. So, Lando cuts his blouse and makes masks for all of them. And yes, the narrative does call Lando's shirt a blouse. Yes. Also, Lando masking since the mid-90s. He was ahead of us all. Also, Lando taking the first possible opportunity he can to, like, whip his shirt off. Sadly, Tendra's not here. I know. Freepio says that they need to go fast. The glow point has increased by its brightness by 35% since they arrived. Sansen says that everyone in the car should wait for three minutes, and then they should come running. So she and Lando exit and head for the door. She gets the door open, and Lando helps her through it. They get the door closed, and the air pumps on. Lando also tosses an oxygen mask into the little airlock room for the others to hopefully retrieve. This whole section is really harrowing because they're all they're both holding their breath. Yeah. As long as they can. And at one point, Sansen like accidentally breathes and then she's like kind of out of commission because the air is It's not air. <laughs> it's not air. Like <laughs> Luke tells the others to go before him. Gariel tries to protest, but he says his Jedi powers will give him an edge they don't have. The others leave, and Luke follows soon after. He closes his eyes and uses the Force to guide himself to the door. The droids, though, even though they're so slow, beat everyone to it. They get through the door, but because of the oxygen mask that Lando left behind for them, thinking it would be helpful, Gariel's dress catches on <laughs> fire. Luke quickly puts it out. Gariel didn't even realize that her clothes were burning. Like, she's like, just saying that all of a sudden Luke just tackles her and yeah. she's a pattern. She's like, what is going on? She's like, she, they're all in really rough shape. Luke is in the best shape of them all. Like, they can't see anything. 
Yeah, like they really struggled to even get to the door because these like winds and debris and like grit and stuff. It's like a sandstorm. almost. But once the fire is out, they then each use the oxygen mask and feel better as the air pump turns on. And that might be one of the just single best moments in this entire series. Best? Most terrifying. Okay. Harrowing. I wouldn't say like best Uh, necessarily, but I would say it was a nail biter. Yes. Like you're at the, like, you know, Luke and Lando can't die, and yet you are worried for them. And the the other women there, they don't have plot armor the way Luke and Lando do. No, indeed they don't. <laughs> Ten minutes later, R two says the temperature is over the boiling point and it's still getting hotter. Yikes! Sonson says this is no terrorist attack. Lando disagrees, but says her people are not the targets, just innocent bystanders. Lando says there are three unknown technologies that they are dealing with. The jamming and interdiction field both come from Centerpoint Station. He thinks the Starbuster tech does too. And the flare is another star about to be destroyed. In retrospect, it makes a lot of sense for the Starbuster to be from Centerpoint like the other two things are. But at the same time, I don't think I knew where it was coming from. When I first read this, you know. I mean, and even at this point, everybody's saying the jamming and interdiction field is coming from here. We still don't have proof of that. It's centered here. But that's it. <laughs> I mean, given the size of the interaction field especially, it'd be hard to not have it the center be where the point of origin is, I feel like. I guess, but like... Just the amount of power that thing would take. Well, but things in Star Wars work the way that the author needs them to work. So if the author needed center point to be a red herring, it would be. All right, fair. Like somebody could be pointing a laser from either directly up or directly down center point, And the signal is all originating from the source of that laser. But the, like, actual stuff is centered on center point, you know? Yeah. Like, to me, even at this point, I was like, well, clearly the the plot thinks that everything's coming from here. But I haven't seen any hard evidence. Okay. Han is getting tired of waiting. They have been here for days. Leia tells him to take it easy. Patience is the hardest part of diplomacy. Han says he's reached his limit, and Mara agreed with him. So, Mara tells Dragmas that she's leaving in an hour if nothing changes. They must meet with someone in authority, or she is gone, and Han and Leia say that they will leave too. After Dracmas leaves, Leia is not happy with what Mara did, but she did feel it was important to keep a united front. Mara has trade with Slonians. Han and Leia have very little experience with them, so Mara says putting pressure on them will actually help, otherwise they could be waiting for weeks or even months. They kind of remind me a little bit of Ents, just like how long it takes to get to a decision. Mm-hmm. But also... Mara has just an incredible line in here when her and Leia are arguing about Mara being, like, too aggressive. Mara says, negotiation is my stock in trade. And Leia replies, do you call insulting our hosts negotiating? Mara says, negotiating is the art of getting what you want. It's not the art of making the other side feel better. (laughs) And then Leia follows up with, they aren't the other side. There are partners in this negotiation. Mara has to come back for that, too. She says, if they were our partners, we wouldn't need to negotiate. (laughs) Mara's great. Very different attitudes on diplomacy and negotiation. And depending on the situation, both work. I mean, Mara's a businesswoman. Yeah. Leia's a politician. It's a different perspective. But I just loved the whole, like, negotiation is not about making the other side feel better. (laughs) Like, of course, Mara does not care if the other side feels better. She's like, I want results. Now. Uh, I love it. (laughs) 
Previously, Drachmas had told Mara that someone outside of all of these rebel groups was helping organize the search for all of their repulsors. Mara thinks the rebels exist on all five worlds because of the search for the repulsors. They are a smokescreen for the true enemy. They're not really rebel groups. <laughs> the revolts are just a cover to find the repulsors. They know there was outside help and coordination, and the outside help has done all of this to get control of the repulsors, but the Human League messed it all up. Mara is worried the Overden has won over the struggle against the Hunchusik. A fight between two groups of Salonians usually ends when one side can show they have a massive advantage over the other, like the repulsor. A Salonian then walks in, and as she's named Clavitz. She says that Mara is correct. The Overden has won, and won all of them. Right, row. Oh boy. Anakin is able to get Q9 fixed with Chewie's help. Hebrahim tells Q9 that Anakin turned the repulsor on and accidentally damaged him, which Q9's not happy about. No. Marcha says a ship is coming in and wants to know whose it is. Sansan shares the station log files with everyone, and with R2 and 3PO's help, they find a ton of information. Station systems that no one knew about, power fluctuations, radiation levels rising and falling, and even changes in the station's spin orientation. It really makes you wonder if they just didn't ever have droids. Well, I kind of feel like if everything is always stable and not changing, it's kind of hard to find these things. But because things have been changing recently, it's those differences they will spot and use that to figure things out. But, like, they had enough time before everyone evacuated to do a little bit of investigating. I'm just surprised they didn't bring in, like, I don't know, a newer model protocol droid, an astromech. <laughs> and if Corellian and like Han and just hate droids in general? Does Han hate droids? I mean, he hates 3PO. Who doesn't hate 3PO? <laughs> 3PO's the worst droid in existence. First book of the series, he says he's not a huge fan of droids being on his ship. Sure. I wouldn't extrapolate and assume that all Corellians are like I Han. I wouldn't either, but maybe that's... Corrin seems to be totally fine with having an astromech yeah. on his but ship. But there's Wedge, droid hitting Antilles. He just wants droids to be mindless machines. He doesn't necessarily hate them because you don't hate things that you're prejudiced against. You just want them to go away. It's not it's a common misconception. It's not hatred. It's like total dismissal. That's fair. I'm just saying, you're the one who has given him that name of droid hating Antilles. That's it's true because he does actually hate droids. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least he hated Minoc. Poor Minoc. Justice for Minoc. We hardly knew he. Looking over the data, Lando says that Centerpoint Station isn't just a repulsor itself, it's a hyperspace repulsor, capable of pulling a planet through hyperspace. It's basically a super tractor beam. Hollowtown was never supposed to be habitable. Lando thinks the glow point was essentially a pilot light for the station. And everybody built their farms and their houses and their lakes and their parks and whatever below it. Oh my god. Humans are so stupid. It wasn't just humans here, but yes. People are so stupid. Maybe when the builders were done, they decided to turn it into a place where people could live, but... That eh. was not the original intention of this place. Yeah. And so what do you think? It's a giant tractor beam that can work through hyperspace. I mean, like, it's a cool idea. Yeah, I love this concept. Yeah. It makes I have so many questions about the people who created yes. this technology and why. Why would you bother? <laughs> but what I love it is just it feels so different than oh, yeah. other super weapons. Like this is not a super weapon; it just can be used as a super weapon. I think that's why it, one of the reasons why it works. Yeah. In many ways, this feels to me so much more sci-fi than Star Wars usually goes, which I think is another reason why I like it. It feels more like. 
it feels like Mass Effecty in a way. Yeah, like it does. Discovering this ancient technology, it feels sort of like the, the Expanse. Oh. Also, I haven't watched the show, but I've read many of the books. I really need to get back to them. But it just, it like, it feels like that, like discovering alien technology and like trying to make something out of it, kind of thing, which I really enjoy. It's the archaeologist in me. <laughs> Glenda asks why Lando thinks Centerpoint is the Starbuster. He says the power to pull a planet could be converted to induce a compression wave in a star's core. Lando thinks that all the strange events that they have found in the system was Centerpoint getting ready to fire. The first supernova happened shortly after the first flare. Different power shifted when the jamming and interdiction fields went up, and then the second flare hit, and the second supernova happened soon after that. The station has reoriented itself each time to point at the star before it went nova, and is now pointed at Bovo Yagen and is getting ready to fire. Kalenda asks, how long do they have? And R2 says 123 hours, 10 minutes, and 13 seconds until it fires. 12 hours and 12 minutes later, the star will go nova. Luke asks why the planetary repulsors are so important since the Starbuster, Interdiction Field, and Jamming all come from here. Lando says maybe going after them was a misdirection from whoever is behind it all. Or, Kalenda interrupts and says the repulsors can interfere with each other. Power to a small side repulsor cell can deflect the beam from the main repulsor. Lando says, exactly. The planetary repulsors can jam Centerpoint's hyperspace tractor repulsor beam. God, that's a mouthful. He adds, they can also act as amplifiers, making Centerpoint even more powerful. That's terrifying to think about. Yeah. Glenda asks, what can they do to stop this? Sonson says there must be a cable to cut or a control system to smash. And Lando agrees, but they have no idea where they are. Gary suggests blowing up the station, and Kalenda asks how. Luke says they need to tell their allies and to try and find Han and Leia, then get to a planetary repulsor in time to stop the next supernova. Ibrahim sees a Human League symbol painted on the ship. Chewie tries to get the shields up on the Falcon, but the Human League troops have gotten too close. Bracken steps out of the ship. Everyone but Q9 is in the cockpit, which gives Ibrahim an idea. Bracken is happy. He thinks the Falcon and repulsor are gifts from the gods. Which gods? One must ask. He has a repulsor in time to control the situation, and with the children, he can control Leia. But he'll have to take the jamming down to let her know about the children. He's the only rebel leader who knows how he can disrupt the Starbuster plot, which is what he's been doing, and he knows it will take time for the text to figure out how to use the repulsor, but he figures he can bluff it for now, because that's what's gotten him this far. Bluffing. The intruder is still far away, and Ocelage watches the Human League ship get to the repulsor first. For now, they will orbit out of line of sight of the Repulsor and put a ground attack team together. So he is not thrown in the tally yet. Nope. In the forest, Luke senses Leia on Salonia and the kids on Drawl, and that they are all probably prisoners. So Luke will go to Leia, and Lando will drop everyone else off the fleet, and then he and Kalenda will go for the kids. Clavitz says once an agreement has been reached, they'll be allowed to leave. Leia says she won't agree to anything, and if she did, she's under duress, so the New Republic wouldn't ratify it. Clavitz says they just want to be free of the New Republic, just recognize that fact, and they can go. Mara says they won't be any freer, they aren't throwing out a tyrant. Han says that if the Overden gets what it wants, they would be completely isolated, they'd place an embargo on the planet. Clavitz says that she would be happy with that. Drachmas is present as well, and clearly wouldn't be. Clavitz says, recognize their freedom, or never leave the planet. Leia says, no deal, so they may as well kill them now. <laughs> Apparently her um, whole making the other side feel better has gone out the window. Yep, rightfully so. 
Clavit says that they will be here for a while. Because, like, Salonians just want to badger you into submission, not kill you. Also, if you kill Leia, you, you kill your bargaining chip. Yeah. There's no hope, then. Thracken knows when the jamming comes down, the original controllers of the Starbuster plot will turn the interdiction field off as well. They will jump in and meet the Bakuran fleet, and he's happy to let the two sides fight it out. He also knows he won't be able to turn the jamming back on once it's off. But he figures it's worth the risk, and he sends the signal to turn the jamming off at center point. Dun dun. Using a radionic signal. Yep. Lando gets back to the fleet and wonders where the intruder is. For now, they'll dock on one of the other ships and figure it out. The kids, Chewie, Ebrahim, Marcha, are all stuck in the force field, and they are watching the Human League just kind of rifle through everything. Anakin can see but cannot touch the device holding the prisoner, and he is not happy about it. Thracken comes over to say hello. The twins say hi, but Anakin starts crying. Thracken looks so much like their father, it's very upsetting for Anakin. Poor boy. Thracken says he's here for a picture of them all together. He doubts anyone will care about the drawl or Wookiee, but expects the children's parents will be inspired to be more reasonable if they know that he has them and the repulsor. Marcia says he's making a mistake, but he ignores her. Thracken then tells the children to move to one side of the force field, away from the aliens. And then a new barrier comes up in the middle, separating the kids from the others. Jaina makes sure that Anakin is watching the tech when he manipulates the force field, so he can hopefully get them out of here later. Thracken gets a photo with them and then leaves. Jaina asks Marcha if Thracken has really made a mistake, and Marcha says yes. Chewie then shows that he's hiding a comlink in his fur. He'll use it to contact Q9, who is currently hiding in the smuggling compartment of the Falcon. Smart Wookiee. With update information, Lando, Gariel, Kalenda, and 3PO will head to the intruder at Drawl, while Sansa will stay with the Sentinel to help since she is the center point expert. Some expert. She doesn't know anything. She knows more than the rest. Luke is on his way to Salonia when the jamming comes down and he hears Thracken's message. Clavitz and Drachmas are visiting the three prisoners again. All of a sudden, the comms come alive. Han jumps half a meter into the air in surprise. <laughs> Thracken then appears on screen. He says the Human League has the draw planetary repulsor. He adds that the New Republic kept the existence of the device a secret. And Han's like, we didn't even know about it. He also says they'll have the Corellian repulsor soon, too. He then shows the three solo children and says he saved them from the aliens who held them prisoner. He'll return them to their mother after she comes out of hiding and confirms Corellian independence. Drachma says that the repulsor looks like their own, but Clavitz cuts her off before she can say any more. Chewie doesn't look beaten, which gives Han some hope, because both he and Leia are kind of like, oh, this is bad. Drachmas goes off on a bit of a a spiel and says, this is most horrifying and most bad. Thracken turns even more deeply against his own blood, his own den and clan. Clavitz tells Drachmas to explain. Drachmas says that Thracken is Han's blood and he threatens his own. Clavitz is shocked. How could any being do such a thing? Han then says that Clavitz is doing the same thing. And Clavitz is like, you're not my blood. What are you talking about? Han says, but Drachmas is your blood. And she is holding Drachmas spiritually hostage by holding them here. He then asks, who controls the Salonian repulsor? And Clavitz says, good Salonians, of course. And he asks if they are the overdone. And she won't say. And Drachmas says, she must. Clavitz says, the castouts, the Salonians of the triad from Sakoria control it. Mara is shocked about the Sikorian revelation. Drachmas is sickened and filled with revulsion. Clavitz falls at her feet, and Drachmas tells her to get up. The others must know the truth. This was a interesting revelation. Yeah, 
And at this point, I was like, okay, so like probably the triads behind all of this, which didn't feel very satisfying to me, but it's fine. I did think so. The reason why they were able to put so much pressure on Clavitz is because the community is so important and lying about this kind of thing was clearly eating away at her. Yeah. Through all this, Leia is not doing well. She is very worried about her children and Han goes to comfort her. Then Leia stands up and says that Luke is coming as his X-wing flies overhead. After landing, Luke greets Han and Leia with a hug while Mara hangs back and just like sort of nicely says hello and smiles at him and is like, it's good to see you. And Luke's like, it's good to see you too. (laughs) When they do greet each other, Han notes that Mara's voice is a little bit softer than usual. Just a little bit. Were you so happy about that? Yeah, it was like the one crumb I got. (laughs) I'm sure I'll get more crumbs coming up, but you know, sometimes a girl wants more than crumbs. That's all I'm saying. You want a whole muffin? Yeah. A whole muffin. <laughs> Luke tells Leia they'll get the children back. Ibrahim calls Q9 and tells him to come out. Q9 has become incredibly paranoid since Anakin almost destroyed him. Fair. Fair. He gets outside and asks what they want. And Ibrahim says, Most beings would find that obvious. I want you to get us out of here. Q9 greets the children, and Anakin says that the droid is acting weird. Q9 runs a diagnostic, and he says, you know what? I am acting weird. It's maybe because you killed me. Maybe. It might have something to do with being roasted alive and stuck in a storage bin for several hours. It's longer than several, too. It's like 12 hours. He's just upside down in there having a panic attack. Yep. He's like, I won't turn myself off, because I have much trouble to come back online. Yeah. Oh. Ebrahim says it's a flaw in the Q9 series design. They don't react well to extended periods of stress, and Q9 asks, who does? Good point. Jason says, great, we're counting on a manic depressive droid to break us out of here. <laughs> I think it's just a droid with a, an anxiety disorder. He's nine. he doesn't know the difference. <laughs> I know. Anakin tells Q9 what to do and asks if Q9 can pick the lock. He looks at it and says no. Anakin asks Q9 to read him what everything says. He eventually gets Q9 to make the force field as weak as possible without the key. The kids, led by Anakin, use the force to push out of the weakened force field. Q9 says what they just did was impossible. Jaina asks about the others, and Anakin says that he doesn't think he can get them out using that method. So there are so many great Anakin moments in this book and series. This is one of my favorites, though. Just pushing through that force field with his, with his uh, brother and sister. It's so cool. That's nice. We agree to disagree on this. Yeah, it's fine. Like, it it wasn't, like, super crazy to me. Something that the children do later is much more exciting to me. I mean, that's fair. I just, I, I love, like, the droids, like, that, that shouldn't be possible, and they just go ahead and do it. And I just like that. Well, important that he didn't tell them before they tried it. <laughs> yeah, probably. That it was impossible. Ebrahim tells them to fly the Falcon and leave them here. The three of them will be much less viable as hostages with the kids gone. So, like, they don't want to leave, but they're like, yeah, okay, we'll go. (laughs) Ocelage meets with Lando and the rest. They fill him in on what they learned about Centerpoint and the repulsor engines. Tendra is woken up by an alarm. The interdiction field has come down. She decides to enter Centerpoint, the last place she heard from Lando. And the center of the action. Yeah. Good luck. When she said, when she thought that she was doing this, I was like, do you, are you sure? Do you want to go there? Kalenda doesn't think that Thraken can control the planetary repulsor. 
Oscillage says they fired it already. She says it was more of an uncontrolled startup. Lando thinks the children set it off on accident, which attracted Thraken's attention, and then he got there ahead of Oscillage. Oscillage says that that's absurd. Lando says maybe Chewie or the Drawl did it instead then. Oscillage still thinks that Thraken's people turned it on, and his assault team will go in at sunset to try to wrest control back from them. This was, I think this was actually the first time maybe that I was finally like, okay, I don't like Oscillage. Um, For me, it's that I never dislike him. He's just, he's a little, he's very traditional, like, children can't do that. Well, yeah, that's what, he's he's very sneery during this whole section, very condescending. And on the one hand, I get it. Like, you're told that these, like, how old are they here? Like Nine and seven. Nine and seven, yeah. You're told that these children, like, figured out how to turn on this planetary repulsor that you didn't even know existed until very recently. Like, of course, you're going to have a hard time believing that. But it's it's just the way that he goes about portraying that disbelief where he's very condescending. He's very, like, snarky and sneery. And I just don't like that. I did love that Lando's the one who's like, I think the children did it. Yeah. Like, he's, he's been around them long enough. He's to like, know I know special. what's up. <laughs> I know what those kids are doing. I feel it in my bones. They're always getting into trouble. Yeah. Lando asks if anyone thinks that Thraken can fire the repulsor right now. Kalenda isn't sure. She thinks whoever is actually in charge sent in their own team of techs. Gariel thinks that with the comms blackout over, they will meet the real enemy soon. They are then told the interdiction field has come down. Oscillage gets a call from someone named Source A. He apologizes to the group. He promised to keep this person a secret for now and picks up a headset so that nobody else can hear him talking to them. Mysterious. Lando and Kalenda discuss who Source A could be. Both have an idea, but don't want to say who it is out loud. And I forget, did you figure it out? No, I didn't. I, I was going through all the A names that I thought I knew. And the furthest I got was Anakin. <laughs> and I was I briefly entertained the idea that Oscillage, for whatever reason, was trying to portray something, like per- outwardly portray that he didn't have any faith in the kids, but like was actually secretly in contact with them. And I, then I discarded that theory and just sort of gave up. I, I actually started just assuming it was someone who, like, the reader doesn't know, but Lando and Kalenda maybe do. Like, so much of this series, I feel like it's hiding in plain sight and so obvious in retrospect. Yeah, it's almost, like, too obvious. I, I actually like that the author never really tried... They try and hide things, but they don't try and hide it super well, and yet it's a lot of things we just don't guess. Yeah. Like... The jamming and the interdiction field both come from center point. Of course, the Starbuster's there too. I mean, that makes sense in the way that like fiction makes sense. Yeah. Right. Sometimes I, I guess I'm trying to be too. Well, this is a problem I have with Star Wars in general. <laughs> I'm sometimes trying to be too realistic. And, you know, I got very caught up in thinking like, well, it's just that the jamming and the field are centered on center point. That doesn't mean like it doesn't mean anything it does mean something sometimes it's simpler than you know i'm trying to make it tendra thinks it likely she'll be the first ship to arrive in system it then dawns on her that that might be a bad thing (laughs) but it's too late now she exits hyperspace at center point she practically sobs in relief until the sentinel tells her to identify herself or be fired (laughs) on poor woman she jumps in surprise and then identifies herself as the gentleman caller and is told not to get within 100,000 kilometers of center point. So she just kind of drifts away. The other ships suddenly appear on hyperspace. The Sikorian fleet has arrived. 
On the intruder, Kalinda asks whose side the Sikorians are on. Oshledge says the triad is behind it all, and they aren't happy the Human League hijacked their scheme. He's only guessing, but he'd be astonished if he was wrong. Thracken interrupted their plans by getting control of the jamming and interdiction field, but not the Starbuster. Lando thinks Oslich is right. The Starbuster seems to be going on automatic, and Lando wonders where the Sikorians found the ships and crew. Oslich says that everything in Corellia can be bought or rented. You know, think about where we are, Calrissian. Probably why the Rebels were so ill-equipped in the system itself, the better ships were at Sikoria. So this is the first time someone names the Triad as the villain, and again, it felt hidden in plain sight. Neither has really loved that they are the villain, but in retrospect, it is very obvious. Yeah, so again, like from a meta standpoint, this makes sense because it ties in like it it explains why Tendra is part of this plot at all, right? And what Luke and Lando witnessed on Takoria. Yeah, like it makes that fit. But I think just because the triad is so shadowy and so hidden, it it's not that it feels wrong to me. It just doesn't feel very satisfying. Which yeah, are two I agree. different things. It's like it's too hidden in this series and like for the triad, we never see them. Yeah. Do we even get the names of the three by no. the end? I don't think so. Spoiler. The, <laughs> the closest we get is like um we, we know that the that the Salonian of the triad controls the like is in control of the Overden. Not in control of the Overden, in control of the repulsor. Sure, but as a result is in control of the Overden. Yeah. Yeah. But like the draw of the human of the triad, we never hear any actions they specifically take other than putting this fleet together. Yeah. And yet yeah, they're just too well hidden. And I would have, I forget if I said this earlier, but this is the one book of the series I would have liked it to be a little bit longer because you could put in a few more details like that. Well, I think what I wanted was in the second book for us to see, to have seen people that ended up being agents of the triad that we didn't realize were agents at the like, time. Farnes could have been one, I feel like. But he's an agent of the Human League. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that it feels incorrect to me. It just doesn't feel satisfying. Yeah, I agree. And so much of the series is so satisfying, it, it stands out because of that. Yeah. It's it's still a really good book and series, but yeah. And I think it's, I don't know. I think part of it is just that in Star Wars, you always expect the villain to be very personal somehow. Especially and they with tried, Thraken. <laughs> they tried to do that. They tried to pull that in with Thraken, basically. But it's fine for there to not be a personal villain. I, I just think that if you're going to have a villain that starts off being impersonal over the course of something like a trilogy, they need to develop some kind of actual personal relationship with the protagonist. Or at least let us see something of them. Yeah. In order for us to feel like satisfied with the resolution of them being beaten. Oslidge won't move the intruder back to the other two current ships. It could be seen as an act of aggression, and he doesn't want to do that. Besides... They have a mission they have to finish first, getting the repulsor on draw. Drachmas tells Han and the others why the Sikorian Salonians are bad. Their ancestors tried to lie and cheat their way to advantage over the den. They were kicked off of Salonia and Corellia. So thinking back to how shocked and appalled they were at Thragon's actions towards Han as members of the family, that's what the triad Salonians of old did. Not the exact same, obviously, but they betrayed their family, and that for a Salonian is about the worst thing you can do. Yeah. It's, like, inconceivable. Han asks how Clavitz's confession to bring them back changes things. Drachma says it means the Hunchuzik were tricked. The Overden loses face, and the Hunchuzik will take over the repulsor from them. Though the Triad Salonians are actually the ones who currently hold it, not the Overden. They are in talks right now to take over the repulsor from the Overden, 
and they know they will eventually get it. Han asks Drachmus what, what the catch is, and Drachmus says, it might take a little while. He asks how long, and she says she doesn't know. It could be days, months, maybe even years. Luke says they had a day at most. With Chewie's help on the comlink, the kids get the Falcon flying. Jason gets in the pilot seat while Jaina acts as the co-pilot. Before leaving, Jaina fires at the force field generator so that the adults can get away. And then she also fires on the assault boat that Thraken came in on. Thraken is thrown to the ground and very confused. He gets outside in time to see the Falcon lifting off. He orders the Falcon chased, even though his ship is damaged. Thraken is unhappy with the pursuit and orders the gunner to move so that he can fire at the kids. The gunner gives Thraken the controls and says, I never thought I'd meet a man who thought it a special point of pride to shoot down his own flesh and blood. Thraken, what a guy. What a guy. The intruder spots the fight and Lando instantly recognizes the Falcon. He says the pilot must be drunk, but it's definitely the Falcon. <laughs> Glenda asks who is flying and Lando says, well, it ain't Chewie. Oslich asks who then, and Lando thinks it's one of the children. Oslich orders both ships to be caught in a tractor beam. And he's also like, no. It should be said that Lando's like, I mean, I could tell you who I think is flying it, but you're not going to believe me. And Oslich is like, it's not the kids. <laughs> like, stop. <sighs> Jaina starts firing back at Thraken. She hits the assault boat's engine, and it's dead in space. Because you hit the engine, and it just stops and doesn't move. That's how space works. That's how ships work. I don't know. I've Weirdly, I've thought about this a lot lately. Just the fact that, like, you score a lucky hit on a ship, and the ship is out of the fight. But I guess... It would keep moving if the movement had. Well, yeah, but I, I'm thinking about, like, why don't they design these ships better? So the engines are, like, better concealed or, uh. like, and then I think to myself, like, well, when someone designed the Falcon, the original Falcon, they weren't thinking about it getting into firefights. Like, that's not a ship that was actually supposed to be doing that. So if some of its parts are more exposed because, like, I don't know, lots of stuff in Star Wars just doesn't make sense. No. So, both ships get caught in the intruder's tractor beam. The Falcon at first tries to break free, but Lando calls to tell them that it's okay. Both sides are very relieved. The prisoners are brought on board the intruder, and Thraken sees the kids and just has a look of pure hatred on his face. And Anakin says, our cousin is a very bad man. Lando sends a message to Luke and Mara, and tells them that the Sikorians are the real enemy and that the kids have escaped. He also says that Gariel has called a council of war and wants everyone there. She even wants a Salonian in attendance, if possible. Mara, Lando, Han, and Luke all head for the intruder. Leia runs forward to her kids and Han is right behind her. It becomes a big family hug. Luke joins in. Even Lando does too. Aww. The council of war is made up of Luke, Leia, Lando, Han, Oslidge, Gariel, Kalenda, Mara, Ebrahim, Marcha, Chewie, Sansan, and Drachmas. They all agree that, given what's at stake, the destruction of their force is a small price to pay if they can stop the next star from being destroyed. They are outnumbered about 80 to 3. The good news is most of the Sikorian ships are old and not in great shape. They are pretty sure that no one controls the repulsors on Corellia, Talus, or Trallus. Han asks if they can blow Centerpoint Station up, and Sansan says no. Han's always looking to blow something up. I mean, in Star Wars, that's usually the easiest way to deal with your problems. It makes me think of in The Force Awakens when they're trying to figure out how to destroy Star Killer Base. He's like, there's always a way to blow these things up. 
Drachma says they don't have the Sloan Unipulsar under their full control yet, and Oslage asks if it can be done before the next Starbuster shot, and she says there's only a small chance. Mara pipes up and, says, and asks if they've tried money, and Drachma says no. They'll try it at once! She's, like, baffled. She's like, why didn't we think of that? Othledge says the one on draw they have is working, but they've only had it for a little while and need more time to figure out how to work it. Marcia says the kids can do it. He tells her that's absurd, but Kalenda says that he's making a mistake. They have the repulsor and Thraken because of those kids. Othledge says he'll put the non-combatants on draw and asks Han and Leia if the children can be put to work. They agree. Child labor alert. Child labor alert. <laughs> Othledge then reveals who Source A is, but we don't Just get not to, to us. Just to the War Council. The Solo family parts ways again. The adults are on the Falcon and the kids are going to their pulsar. Han and Leia kiss all of them and let them go. And it's a very sad scene. But at least they got to say goodbye this time. Yeah. Unlike at the end of Ambush where everyone just kind of runs in separate directions. Yeah. Han then goes to see Thraken. He tells his cousin that he shouldn't have kidnapped his children and asks how could he do it. Thraken says, easily. Far too easily. They just fell into my hand. How could I not keep them? Han says that Thraken lost, and Thraken agrees that he has, but says Han hasn't won yet. The Triad Fleet is out there, which gives Thraken some consolation. Han walks away, still not sure why he went to see his cousin. And indeed, this remains unresolved <laughs> for the rest of the plot. A few people try to talk Leia out of being the gunner on the Falcon, but she is determined to be on the ship. She's been pushed around re- enough recently, it's time for her to push back. <laughs> and I, I love that so much. Like, you know the chief would say, I don't care, I'm shooting someone. <laughs> I'm tired of not shooting people. Do you have any idea how much restraint I've had to exercise this entire time to not shoot people? <laughs> Lando's on the Lady Luck, Mara's on the Jade's Fire, and Lucas in his X-Wing. They'll all fly together to so never break up any but current squadrons or force them to fly with unfamiliar ships and pilots. So they're kind of a uh, squadron of just... Just mishmash. Yeah, I love it. And Mara is the one kind of like odd duck addition to this because, you know, everybody in this party feels the kind of way about her complicated. And they're all, like, bantering back and forth and, like, having a good time. And then Mara's, like, I don't know. She cuts in with something snarky where she's, like, stop it. Pay attention. And Chewie's kind of complaining about her. Bra- I think it's Chewie who's complaining about her breaking up the bantering. And Han's, like, I don't know. Anybody who can fly and shoot like that can be on my wing or something. Yeah. Because, like. She Mar- has really impressed Han in this book. Yeah. Yeah. She was able to, like, follow them down in the cone ship. And help keep the uh, all of the other fighters off of them and stuff. So she's kind of earned a little bit of Han's regard. Anakin asks Anton, the technician, how far they've gotten on the repulsor. He doesn't want to answer the child because it's a seven-year-old. But Ebrahim, Marcha, 3PO, Q9, all vouch for Anakin. So Anton's like, fine. And says they haven't gotten anywhere. The system won't respond to their commands. And Anakin says, sure it will. He then touches it and a joystick, perfectly shaped for him, comes out. And Anton's like, what? Excuse you? He does the same thing, but nothing happens. He then realizes that the repulsor has imprinted itself on Anakin, the fingerprint, DNA, brainwave, or something. It will only work for this child. He'll have to operate the repulsor. Nothing could go <laughs> wrong. Ocelage asks Gariel if she thinks the plan will work. She replies that it isn't easy, is it? Sending people out to do your bidding, living and dying by your orders. Ostelage says, no, it isn't easy. Everyone else knows what to do because I have told them. But who tells me? Ostelage, complaining about adulting. I really identified <laughs> right? with the statement. So much. That's why I included it. Because like, I feel like anyone who's ever in charge of someone else yeah. in any capacity is like, 
who's telling me what to do? Yeah, I have felt this way at work a lot lately where I'm like, they all know what to do because I've told them. Are they doing it correctly the way that I've told them to? Not necessarily, but at least they have someone who told them what to do. Nobody's telling me what to do. <laughs> I miss that. I feel that. Tendra is orbiting the Star Corral. She is orbiting between the two fleets and has no way out. Lando is reviewing data and he sees a ship orbiting the sun. He realizes who it is and breaks off to go see her okay. right before the fight. <laughs> of course. Drachmas tells everyone that the bribe worked. The Salonians won't give in, but they did sell them an instruction manual for their repulsor. So Antone takes it. Between the manual and Anakin, Antone thinks that they can get this place running. Anakin falls asleep in the midst of all the excitement. Ebrahim says, the rest of us can keep working, but I suppose a child has to get a good night's sleep if he's expected to save two or three star systems in the morning. <laughs> Poor boy. Like, and before this, they had all been thinking, like, oh, he's looking kind of overtired. He's getting that kind of, like, hyper thing that happens to kids when they're forced too much going to, on. yeah, when there's too much going on. And then in the midst of all of the excitement, he just falls asleep. It's like, well. <laughs> Tendra is asleep when someone docks for their ship. She's like, what's going on? Who is it? And then Lando appears. He's like, I tried to call ahead, but there was no answer. And they hug. Aww. She said it was too dangerous for him to come to her. And Lando replies, come on. I had to think of my image. How could I possibly turn down the chance to rescue the damsel in distress? So smooth. Oslage sends a message out. They'll commence the operation in one hour and 35 minutes. Once the battle begins, they need to hold out for just an hour. Then Source A will help. A little more than an hour after that, center point will fire. So they need to do what they're going to do before then. They've got a very tight timeline. Yep. Mara is alone on her ship. Her pilot and navigator have vanished. She doesn't know if they're alive or dead or captured, but she's ready to fight for them. This this part really left me with more questions than answers. I felt like it was intended to kind of like you're getting a Mara POV. So the reader should know the reader should know that what's on her mind. Well, not... You interrupted me. That's not what I was going to say. Okay. You don't know me. (laughs) You don't know what's on my mind. I thought it was supposed to button up the whole, like, Mara was not behind this. Mm. Like, Mara was not in league with the triad. Like, she was not doing something nefarious. But it actually opened up more questions for me because she's just like, I'm not sure what happened to my crew. Which made me think that, like, her crew was potentially in on it and somehow and it's, that's completely different how i read this scene i just read it as they're missing probably dead well she does say that at least and i'm going to fight for them like i take her at her word in this i don't view it as it's not that i wasn't taking her at her word it's that she left it open to be like who knows what happened to them or why th- whatever happened to them happened to them and it's just like you know what it comes down to? You're just not a naturally suspicious person the way that I am. Well, I think what the book is trying to say at this point is war is messy. You don't always get all the answers. Yeah. People who you care about. Yeah. I think that's a fair. I just didn't feel like the line of thinking where everyone is so suspicious of Mara got wrapped up the way that I hoped it was going to get wrapped up. You know, that's fair. And indeed, some of that suspicion, it feels like continues. Indeed. Yeah. At time of recording, I have read four chapters of Spectre of the Past. So you just want to fizz this and get back to that. Um, yeah, at some point today. 
Lando's not sure if he really helped Tendra in the big picture because now she's more likely to die. Yeah, before she was like out of the battle, now she'll be in the thick of it. Well, I mean, she was orbiting in between the two sides. Like, she could have gotten hit by a stray shot, I'm just saying. She says, though, that she has learned that she doesn't want to die alone. They hold hands as they get ready for battle. Aww. Gariel thinks of her daughter before the fight, and she tells Oslo that she was meditating. He says that it's a good time for it. And I really like the sequence. Like, we're basically checking in on everyone, how they're doing, what they're thinking. The Bakuran fleet performs a mini hyperspace jump. They are now at center point. They immediately open fire, and the battle begins. Antone says they should be locked onto the south pole of center point, and Anakin doesn't think so. Something doesn't feel right to him. But Antone doesn't like that answer. So Anakin starts crying and stalks away. Ebrahim tells Jason to bring his brother back after calming him down. He then tells everyone to be nice when Anakin comes back. And Jason says, all right, but only for an hour. <laughs> Fair. Siblings. So about 40 minutes have elapsed and the battle is going well. Han thinks they just have to hold out for another 20 minutes. The Defender and Sentinel have both taken heavy damage but are doing okay. Ocelage also thinks that the plan is working. They are driving through the enemy fleet towards its rear and destroying what they can. The enemy formation is unraveling. Four frigates launch a coordinated attack on the intruder, and Ocelage realizes the attack isn't real. Their lasers are doing no damage. They are camouflage robot ramships, but it's too late and the first one hits the intruder. Jason manages to get Anakin back to the repulsor. Antone is ready to continue, but Anakin says that it's not right. It's too heavy. Jason realizes the gravity is different here. What the Salonians gave them needs to be adjusted. Antone starts trying to fix the mistake with calculations. I love that it's the nine-year-old who has the gravity realization. Yeah, makes sense. The second and third ships hit the intruder, though the fourth one does miss, but the damage is done, the ship is dead. Ostlage, Gariel, and Kalenda are the only survivors on the bridge, and the abandoned ship alert goes out. Gariel can't feel her legs and can't move them. Oslich has a stomach wound. He knows neither of them will make it. Kalenda wants to help them, and Oslich says, You've been a good officer, Lieutenant Kalenda. Do not waste yourself now over a pointless gesture. Go. Kalenda salutes Oslich, bows to Gariel, and then runs. Gariel says they have to blow the ship. It cannot be captured. Oslich agrees. They have to wait for Source A to help the escape pod survive, and then he says that Source A is Admiral Akbar. Which makes sense. Yeah. Could be called Source Double A. Oh, that would have been fun, but it would have given too much away. Yeah. The hour mark hits. Luke and Lando turn to go. They will head for center point because their part in the battle is over. Akbar shows up. He's been putting together what chips he can and been communicating with Oslidge since the jamming went down. Oslidge is ready to push the button, but he can't move his arm, so Gariel does it for him. She thinks of her daughter as she says, Here, let me. The explosion rips a hole in the triad fleet. Wow. It's so sad. It's very dangerous to be an OC in the Star Wars EU. It is. They're the ones who are... They don't have the plot armor. ...the easiest to kill. <laughs> yeah, I felt bad about Gariel dying. I, was... I didn't feel as bad about Oslage just because, like, he's a military man. Eh. Yeah, but she has the daughter. Her husband passed away recently, and... Yeah. Yeah, it was... Bummer. And th th So, th to me, this is, like, the first truly sad moment of the EU. Like... Red fans death, but that came out well after this book had come out. Like mm. this is the first mm -hmm. time Star Wars kills someone in the EU. Okay, yeah, it's sad-ish. I had tears. Okay, you're a sensitive boy, <laughs> soft boy. 
As our friend said last night, I get sad less easily than you do when it comes to fiction specifically. When it comes to real life. Sad at the drop of a hat. All the time. Sad, sad, sad. (laughs) The calculations that Antone is trying to run will take at least another five minutes, but the repulsor needs to be fired now. Jason says, who needs numbers? And asks Anakin if he can make it work, and he says yes. He reaches out with the force and activates the repulsor. The south pole of Centerpoint lights up. It's ready to destroy a star. But a repulsor beam stops it. And Lando says, now. Now it's over. Afterward, Akbar says because of what Oslage and Gariel did, there was little for him to do in the fight. Luke says he will mourn them. He knows that he's a debt to Melinda. The repulsor is now above ground. The kids are playing around it with Sansa and while Kalenda makes faces at them. Aww. Leia is planning to appoint Marcha as the new governor general, and Akbar tells them that Farnus Gleesery has been arrested. He was part of the Human League spy ring, and they were able to get the rest after him. Akbar asks where Lando and Tendra are. They're just walking away from the group. Tendra tells Lando about a technicality in Sikorian law. If she's not in the Sikorian system, she doesn't need her father's approval to get married. So Lando says, Then why don't we go back to Lady Luck and discuss the whole matter over dinner? I've always found legal technicalities to be downright fascinating. What a weirdo. <laughs> Ending the book. <laughs> well, that was a great flirty line. Eh, yeah, I suppose. So what did you think? I liked it. Yeah? Not gonna lie. I did that thing that I do sometimes where I happened to glimpse the last couple of pages of the book when I was still early in the book. Not on purpose, just like as I was picking it up and like flipping to my page, I happened to see it. And I really got this idea in my head that Lando and Tendra, it was going to end on them just flying away in the Lady Luck to go like I, like, go on vacation, basically, together before they decide what they're going to do. And I'm kind of bummed that that's, <laughs> that's not what happened in the end. But I like this, too. I guess you probably weren't asking me about what what I thought of Tendra and Lando. It's fine to start with there. But There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think overall this was a solid, like, conclusion, right, to this trilogy. Like I said earlier, I, I don't love the triad as the, like villain of the piece i wish we had seen more of them earlier i felt like there were some like that reveal and the reveal of akbar like i and the reveal of like the starbuster is coming from inside the walls like <laughs> it's coming from center point i felt like the author thought that those reveals were going to pack a little more punch than they actually did like with everyone that came out i was just like oh i mean that makes sense but i wasn't like I don't know. It's probably too much to ask that every book I read kind of blows my mind, but it it wasn't mind-blowing. That's what I'll say. So, as I've said many times before, I really love this book and series. It's not perfect, but Alan does a really good job of just capturing the feeling of putting the audience in a galaxy far, far away. Like, this feels like such a great follow-up to the original trilogy, and frankly, to what has come before in the EU as well. Yeah. Like, it, it ties everything nicely together. Characters are well-written. The conflict is good. The characters have chemistry and ties to each other. The reunions are wonderful. Yeah. I think Gariel's death is very well done. It helps raise the stakes and tension of the conflict while showing that even good guys can die. And like I said earlier at this point of the EU publishing cycle, this was a rare thing to do. Fan's death was still a long ways away. Yeah. That's weird to think about. Yeah. I also agree with you. The triad being the villains of the series is a bit of a letdown. I remember the first time I read this and I thought, wait, 
those guys? Really? <laughs> Whose names ben? we don't know. <laughs> On subsequent rereads, it has bothered me less. There are hints that it is really them, but I still don't love it because of how impersonal they are and how unseen they are. Other than the Sloanian, we never really hear or know about the other two. We don't even know about, like, we don't even know the name of that specific Salonian. Yeah. We just know that they're... And we don't even know if they are their final fate, I don't think. Like, I, I think they're arrested, but that's about it. Yeah. Speaking of letdowns, I ultimately was... Like, the series started off with me being kind of like, okay, Han's involved, and he's doing stuff. And by the end of this book, I was like, I, I don't feel like he did as much as I wanted him to do. He spends much of the second book just like crawling around in tunnels. It 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 it's one of those things that felt a lot like he had so much agency in the first book, right? Mm-hmm. Like he chooses to like escort Kalenda to the spaceport. He chooses to get captured. And then from there on out, it feels like he's just kind of in this amorphous place between like being sort of a prisoner and like sort like a lot of things are happening to him. He's not making a lot of things happen. The one moment he really does is on the cone ship when he chooses to stay there to make sure they can get it down. Yeah. Which is, I think, why that scene is in this book. But that's like small potatoes. Yeah. And for something that's called, like, the Corellian Trilogy and builds so much as, like, uh, Han must deal with his homeworld and face his past and deal with his cousin. Like, even the conversation with Thraken at the end felt so just open-ended like you don't really know why han bothers to go to see him and there's no like satisfying conclusion to that talk it made me feel a little bit like like the author was trying to leave it open for somebody else to pick up thraken later but like for the purpose of resolving this story it just didn't feel good okay so, like I said before, this is the series where the kids really come into their own, and Anakin Star especially shines incredibly in this book. But he's still a seven-year-old kid and falls asleep when he's tired and throws tantrums when he gets cranky and people are not treating him well. And I love that aspect of him in this book. Like it feels so true to what a seven how a seven-year-old would act. Yeah, like but you're he, expecting him to take on this enormous responsibility, but the truth is he's seven. And, like, he's an extraordinary seven-year-old. But he's still seven. And Jaina and Jason are extraordinary nine-year-olds. And they're still nine. My favorite moment for them was definitely just them, like, (laughs) shooting down Thraken's ship. Yeah, it was a great moment. (laughs) It was too funny. And then Lando bragging about it afterwards (laughs) on the, like, hollow call to Han. He's, like, directly speaking to Han, like, you wouldn't believe it. They did this maneuver, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. I have proof. Like, it's something like, I have footage. Like, I could show you. I loved that part. That really tickled me. Yeah. I I felt like I connected more with the kids than I ever have before in this series, which was really pleasing for me. They've been almost more plot devices, like being kidnapped and captured and whatnot. Being threatened, generally. And like in Crystal Star, we really loved the Jane and Jason storyline in that book, right? Yes. Yeah. That was the other place where I felt like I really connected with the kids. But so much more so here. Like, there's so much more... They have they've really developed their little personalities just because they're a little bit older. Um, they feel much more like people to me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. So there are a lot of books where I've said I would like them to be a little longer or a lot longer. Tom pretty much always wants to add about twenty percent to every book that he reads. I don't think I, th- I thought that for the first book. Well, I didn't think that for New Rebellion or Black Fleet Crisis. That's true. You didn't. I also didn't think that for the first two books of the series because I thought they were just so wonderfully paced. 
and flow together so well. However, the end of this book wraps up a little too quickly and neatly for me, and I think another 20 or 30 pages would have gone a long way to, I think, giving things a little more satisfying to the conclusion, especially the things you were talking about with Kraken, with Mara, with other things. Or even just like the, the final fight was, this author has a lot of strength. I don't think writing battles is one of them. I think he knows that, which is why he did not focus on that too much. Yeah, it felt like we kind of skipped the first 40 minutes of the battle yeah. almost. And what he what he wrote, I thought worked very well, but yeah. I think he knows that is not something he, he's not stacked plural Alston in this regard. I felt like he just didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. I felt like he wanted to get to the end. Yeah. And the big set piece was really the intruder exploding. Yes. And like he really just wanted to get there. But yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. I I think I like I did and I didn't want it to be longer because I think what I actually wanted was it was for it to be slightly different in places like replace content in certain areas. The cone shipping the big one I think you said. The cone ship and just Han, Mara and Leia sitting around in a villa for like a week on on Salonia. Yeah. It would have been great at that point if they had been more active. Like if Han and Mara, maybe because Leia is chief of state and needs to stay safe for diplomacy or whatever. If they could have like done some in- attempted spying, even if they get caught and sent back to the villa, like or even if it had been, I love that Mara is the one who threatens to go. But if Han had been the one to threaten to leave, that actually would have been good for him as well. I think even him yeah. what to do. Yeah, and I felt I feel like the author was like, well, Han can't threaten to leave; it's not his ship. But like, I don't know, he still could have done it. So I feel like if we could have replaced all of that with planting some more stuff about the triad, having those three be more active in their imprisonment, like it just felt very slow compared to other parts of the plot, which are moving at at speed, really. So I've talked about one of the things I like with the series a lot is how harrowing it is. Like I fear for these characters' lives, even though I know Han, Luke, Landicate, they can't die right now. They just can't. And yet there are moments in this series where I am genuinely fearful they might. And I think for me, the not the best, but the most well-done moment for this is in Hollowtown, when there are mm. Luke, Lando, and the rest are about to be burned alive. That, I think, is actually scary to read. Yeah. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. I thought Lando had a good shot at dying in this series. Yeah. Because I don't think he has the same level of plot armor that Luke, Han, and Leia do. I was also really worried about my girl, Kalenda. Like, yeah, at all the time. I was like, oh my god, please don't kill her. And Gariel was there too, and she she dies eventually, obviously. I was not, I just don't care as much about Gariel. Sorry, Gariel. <laughs> but I, I've, I've formed a real attachment to Kalenda. <laughs> you have. I'm afraid of her dying very much. She deserves to live. Yeah, overall, love this series. It's not one of the best of the EU, but it's, it is one of the most fun. Something that Book, Star Wars books can't forget. Star Wars should be fun. And I, I appreciate that the author did that. And I, I do wish he had written other Star Wars books besides just these three. Yeah, it was really fun. It definitely was a good palate cleanser after uh, just everything else we've been reading. I feel like I haven't had a lot of positive things to say about the stuff that we've read over the last, like, I don't know, how long has it been? Like a year and a half? There have been some in there you've liked. Uh, I Jedi you liked, Starfighters of Audemars you liked. Those both feel so long ago at this point. You liked enough of Jedi of Jedi Search and surprisingly enough of Jedi of Children of the Jedi. Yeah. But 
this was the first thing that felt you know what it was it just felt kind of uncomplicated yes like it was not overburdened it didn't feel like it had a bunch of baggage all the characters behaved in ways that made sense to me the language was not super dense and like laborious and full of itself like just felt like a star wars adventure yeah which was really nice yeah and I know that the next couple of books are not going to be that light and easy, which is no. fine. It doesn't always have to be, but it's nice to be reminded that stories can be fun. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. And it's, people can still die. Yeah. When you it's can still fun. be emotional. You yeah. can still be worried about their fate because they, you know, there's a giant sun about to burn them, burn them to a crisp. Yeah. All right. It's been a couple of days since you finished the Corellian Trilogy. Let's talk about what we might see in the future from this series. Will we ever see Thrak and Self solo again? I would have said yes, because it, it just feels kind of unfinished. Like the last conversation that he and Han had felt unresolved, Very I guess. So. But I don't think this author does anything else in Star Wars again. Sadly. That's too bad. I like this stuff. So I guess I won't, I won't discount the possibility that somebody else will pick Thracken up out of the toy box. <laughs> And uh, set him down again. There's a long road to run coming up. Yeah, we'll see him again. I've like talked myself into it. Okay. <laughs> you were like looking over the books. I'm like, how many books are left in the EU? Uh, I was like, uh, we've got so much, so much to go. Well, I don't know. We're like actually closer to the bottom than we are to the top of this six shelf bookcase. And frankly, at the top, most of those that are digital that we own to the top is significantly larger. Than yeah. What it looks like. Eh, I still think I I think he'll show up again. Okay. Any guesses when and where? Like, will he return during the Jason jo- Jaina Jedi Knight series to menace the Solo Children again type thing? Will he show up during the Vong? After it that? would be fun if the kids were eventually the ones to like get the final revenge upon him. Like, I think that's what I would like most because he kidnapped them. I mean. He didn't really captured. He captured them because he didn't have to grab them and take them to a different place. He just came to the place where they were and held them there. (laughs) So, yeah, I guess that's what I would like to see is them, them a little older and even better at shooting, I suppose. (laughs) What would be the long term repercussions of the repulsor being key to Anakin's DNA? I would have had a different answer for this if it was the repulsor that's at center point. The one that can go through hyperspace and move planets and stars around. Yeah, because if it was if he was keyed to that one, I could see that playing like a huge part in a major future galactic con- conflict. Not thinking of anything in particular, <laughs> but since it's just this one planet, it's just drawl. I don't know. I don't know if there will be any long term repercussions. I mean, hopefully, it didn't like. For example, give him cancer. I mean, who knows what's down in there in that place, you know? Like, it's so old. It's from a time when gravity was artificially created by spinning. Like, the concept of there being nuclear power in the universe at that time makes sense. So radiation, radiation poisoning. Anyway, I'm getting really off track. This is just an annoyance and not like a really like a repercussion in that sense. 
I could imagine that over the span of his life, Anakin is going to have to come back to this place over and over again. Every time the draw want to do something new with this thing, you know, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to be in control of it or the new Republic's going to be in control of it. Probably that one. And so like annually, he's going to have to go and help them run all of their experiments. And at some point he's going to get tired of it. (laughs) Will the Centerpoint Station or the Planetary Pulsars ever be used as weapons again? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right? I just feel like we didn't destroy them. We did not. They're there. I feel like that's a good a good toy to keep in the box for okay. later. Will Lando and Tendra last? I mean, I hope so. I liked them together. I wish we had seen a little bit more of them together. You know? It, it was not even like the C plot of the story. So I understand why we didn't. And I also wouldn't have minded if they had just decided to like go off and explore the galaxy together before getting married. Cause it seems like at the end, Tendra is like, we can do it now. We could do it now. <laughs> I don't know. I hope they last just, it would be an interesting new phase of Lando's life. And Tendra seems very cool and kind of crazy, which is a combination that I generally like. <laughs> How will Luke pay his debt to Melinza? I mean, I think it would be fun if it turns out that Melinza is more sensitive because her mom was so like against that stuff, like against actually using the force. And so Luke repays his debt by teaching Melinza how to use the force like she's a future pupil. I like that. I don't know if that has any grounding in reality, but um, Star Wars. I just don't know, like, first of all, the uh, he can think what he wants, but the debt is imaginary. Like, Gariel was an adult and she made her own decisions. And it's it's very sad that she's dead and that this child is now without both of her parents. But it was, I think it was foolish of Luke and Gariel to allow Luke to promise that he was going to be able to keep Gariel safe in the first place. Like, it's such a... Uh, and he clearly didn't want to. Yeah. It's not the... I mean, listen to me talk about how to approach children like I know freaking anything <laughs> about it. But I don't think it's the way to approach kids. Like, I don't I don't think you should... Like, especially a kid like this who has already lost a parent, you shouldn't try to smooth things over with them like that and be like, everything's going to be fine. Nothing bad is going to happen. It should be phrased more like, I will do everything I can to keep your mother safe, but no absolutes. One of my friends told me this recently when we were talking about just like how it feels to like live after a catastrophe and what that does to your brain. I'm sure that she heard this somewhere else, but the saying was something like for an orphan, anything is possible because nothing is safe. Like someone who has been orphaned has already had the worst possible thing happen to them they've lost like their icons of safety and refuge and now they are at the mercy of like depending on who you are all of these horrible movable parts and like your your mental and physical health is at risk and all of this stuff and so once something like that has happened to a kid safety as a concept no longer exists like suddenly their world is open in this hugely scary way And so I think for Melinza in particular, it's like Luke should have gone more with his gut and resisted making that that promise or that offer. 
And I think it would be kind of an insult to Gariel's memory to try and take so much responsibility for her death that he is repaying a debt to her daughter. Like, I might be overthinking this. Or I might just be on a tangent. Tom's just letting me go, y'all. It's not my fault. He's not stopping me. <laughs> he just nods. It's my responsibility to stop you now. Okay. Yep. <laughs> when will the Bakurans and or their introduction technology show up again? Oh, surely eventually. Like, there were a couple of juicy pieces of technology that came up in this series that I would be very surprised if nobody picked up again. The first one is, whether it's in this system or not, that planet repulsor technology there could be somewhere else in this galaxy where that stuff exists. There could be. Like the architects of those systems maybe created other systems that the New Republic hasn't reached yet or, you know, that the Empire never reached even. Like that's possible. And then the other one is this way around interdiction fields. Like surely they're going to need that at some point. It's always not a perfect system. No. But it's better than nothing. It's, but it's, I did it good job for being what it is i mean it's only been in development for what sounds like 13 years like since bakura since truce of bakura i should say i mean it got them in it sounded terrible i think the way you put it on a previous episode is like brute force calculus or something yeah that was that was how ostlage framed it yeah will the triad menace Corellia or the galaxy again i doubt it Actually, I don't think this is going to come up again. They were such distant antagonists. <laughs> like, I don't see any benefit in them, them coming back to the limelight. Though, who knows? I thought that Gariel would never in a million years turn up again. And here she is. When and where will we see your girl, Kalinda, again? <laughs> Not soon enough, I'm sure. Though, I don't know. She could play a huge role in, for example two main things dealing with the rest of the like whatever imperial remnant is left so maybe she'll be inspector of the past vision of the future could she be publication order wise she could be. that was i don't know exactly but that was certainly later than this by quite a bit by a couple of years and i feel like zon tends to make his own new ocs rather than pick up other people's but this does seem like an oc that he would enjoy like that he could find a use for yeah even if it's just a minor role yeah yeah and she really only like she i feel like she had the most major role in the first book in this series yes but the other place i could see her you know using her intelligence chops is once the vong come in yeah somehow i mean obviously she can't god the image is you showed me of the Vong recently just popped back into my head and I had to go like, that's not what they, that's not what I imagined them looking like. Um, and regardless of what I imagined, Kalenda could not make herself look like that. But I still think like she proved to be good at, you know, sneaking around and hiding. She's very resourceful. Yeah. So I don't know. I hope we see her again. She's my hero. <laughs> My icon. Why did the Centerpoint Starbuster plot work better for you than the Sun Crusher? That's a good question. And I've been thinking about it the entire time I've been reading the series. Because it, it clearly series. did work better for you than the yeah. Sun Crusher did. Okay. Is it because like it had limitations maybe on it? 
Like, it could go anywhere in the galaxy, yes, but there was still the time it had to take and orientation. It was a couple of things. One of them, and this... I, I was going to say this sounds kind of dumb. I don't know if it sounds dumb necessarily. It might, it's just a personal preference on my part. One of the things that I liked about it, especially as the like the way it worked was revealed, is that Centerpoint Station is so old. Mm-hmm. And this was not the intended purpose of the station. Like it was as far, as far as we know. It was intended to like move planets that it was corrupting the power. Yeah, yeah. It was taking like it, this existing technology and repurposing it in a way that was still difficult to use, right? Like it still was hard to make this thing work because of how old it was and because that was not like the intended use. I st- I still think Starbuster is a stupid name, though. I don't think I've said that to you out loud, but Well, they, they called the Starbuster plot. They didn't say that was these it was a Starbuster, but it wasn't the Starbuster. It was more of a descriptor rather than the they name. They said Starbuster multiple times without the word plot after it. So like okay, that's a descriptor of what it does. <laughs> and it was part of this like system, right? With all with in line with all these other planets. To me, it had this interesting mystery behind it of like, which was not really resolved of like. Well, I guess it, in a sense, it was res- part of it was resolved. The idea that the Corellian system was in some way artificially created, right? Like that part, we got an answer to. Who did it or why, we still don't have an answer to. But I, I liked the fact that there was that mystery around it. It also felt like because it was so old and because it had been repurposed to do this thing it felt so much more vulnerable than the sun crusher did like yes we figured out how to interrupt it as it happened but the truth was there was another way that they could have if they had had more time there was another way that they could have through manipulation recaptured quote unquote that technology from center point and it was through the radionics stuff that had been planted earlier in the series right mm. like if they had been able to figure out if they had had more than three or four days they they would have been able to figure out like how to connect to the station with radionics and stop it entirely i also got the sense that it's much more scope limited than the sun crusher was like they were able to time and do this stuff because it was firing through hyperspace but only throughout the Corellian sector I would imagine that they maybe would have less success if they tried to fire it further. They could. It would just be, I think, more difficult. Yeah. It, what it comes down to is, is there a clear path for center point to hit that star? Yeah. And for some, easy. Easy peasy. For others, it has to wait. But it would still take time because of, the, because of hyperspace. Yeah. The Sun Crusher. Too easy? Felt like a comic book creation. I'm not necessarily saying that to be insulting to comic books. Like everything has its place. But to me it felt like. It didn't have a vulnerability. Like you had to drop it into a black hole. And even then we're not sure if it's fully destroyed. I'm not convinced. Like. And it was so mobile. And it like was hard to find. And 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 like all of these things. But center point, you know where that thing is. Like, it, ain't, it ain't moving. It's not moving. It's spinning. 
That's it. (laughs) It's spinning itself and it's like orbiting coral, but like, that's it. So I don't know. Like I generally speaking, like overall, I would rather have a story where there's not a super weapon flat out period. (laughs) End of sentence. But if you're going to have a super weapon, I want one that feels like it took actual like matter and energy to create it. And it's not invulnerable. There are limitations on it. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, you can think of the Death Star this way, the original Death Star. Like, it seems impregnable, right? But you look at the schematics and you find out that, you know. There's a hole. There's a hole. (laughs) There's a hole behind the Death Star. (laughs) And there were probably other ways to approach the Death Star to deal with it as well. They just didn't have time to figure them out. Like, besides this fatal flaw. If you had a different, you know, if you had a different sized force going up against said Death Star, like... Land land ground troops try and get to the reactor that way from the inside, maybe. Yeah. I don't like this whole, just a tiny machine that can, like, the Sun Crusher is like, what, a two-seater? It's like a coupe? (laughs) I think they fit like four or five people in there. Yeah, it's pretty small, though. But it's like, it's smaller than the Falcon. Yes. It feels unbalanced. The, the only me. true limiting factor on the Sun Crusher were the number of torpedoes. There were seven, I believe, and no more were created. Mm-hmm. That was the one thing. And it seemed like to create the Sun Crusher because of the quantum armor, or whatever they called it, was incredibly difficult. They never actually, that I can remember, went over how difficult it was to create said torpedoes. Mm-hmm. So that that was limiting for the story, but not necessarily the, an actual limitation if they could mass produce those, and I have no idea. It feels like that also was difficult, even though they didn't go into it, just because there weren't more lying around somewhere, at least that we know of. <laughs> you, don't, you don't need the Sun Crusher to fire those torpedoes. No. Sun Crusher is going to work just fine, right? Yeah. Didn't we talk recently about maybe somebody else having... Oh, was that one of my theories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, was that somebody else had some of those torpedoes and had just yeah. plastered them onto a different ship? Yeah. It, it's interesting to me, in retrospect, I don't know if I'm just not remembering this well, but they really went into a lot about how it was so hard to create the Sun Crusher itself, like the exactly. body of the ship, and they didn't talk about the torpedoes when the torpedoes are actually what matters, which leads me to believe it's not actually hard to make the torpedoes. I mean, maybe only Queese knew how, and that was also forgotten when Kip destroyed her memories. Um, I have to assume that. I have to say one other thing about Centerpoint versus... The Sun Crusher. Much like the housing that the repulsor technology is in versus the housing that the torpedoes are in, it matters what story surrounds these super weapons. Yes, yes it does. Because I found this story much more interesting, much better characterized. The plot was cleaner, like the writing was better all of these things than the Jedi Academy trilogy. And personally, I really like the Jedi Academy trilogy, but I also think this is better. A little person inside of me just leaped up and like cheered to hear you even slightly disparage the Jedi Academy it's trilogy. It's not perfect. <laughs> I have admitted as many of the flaws. I still like them despite those flaws. I know. I know. So I guess what I'm saying is you can get away with a lot with me vis-a-vis super weapons. If you tell a story around it that is compelling, I'm not even going to say compelling generally, compelling to me personally. Yes. <laughs> like this, I understand that this is like subjective, but those things all made this 
a very different experience for me than with other super weapons. And I think the thing that for me that works better than the Sun Crusher was the mystery around it. Like, we knew what the Sun Crusher was capable of the instant it was introduced. It was like Anderson couldn't wait to tell you. And uh, and at the same case with the Death Star, so that's not, I don't think that's, that's not the wrong way to do it. Not necessarily, no. Yeah. But I think the mystery of this series of what is going on was such a driving factor. And really, I think it helped it. With the Sun Crusher story, that wasn't, there was no mystery. And again, that's not necessarily a problem, but the mystery worked really well in this story, which helped. Yeah. Like, by the end of the first book, we don't know who's behind the Human League. We don't know if it's really just the Human League that's doing stuff. By the end of the second book, we still don't know, frankly. Yeah. We don't know for certain where the interdiction field and the jamming is coming from. We have no idea what's causing stars to blow up. Yeah. Like you said, just because it's centered on center point doesn't mean that's where it's emanating from. Yeah. Which never even crossed my mind. (laughs) So, like, having all of that be, like, keeping your interest, like, driving you forward as you read. There was a seriously a point at which I considered, like, nobody is controlling this. And honestly, that once the jamming goes up, that is the point. It is on automatic, which I think Lando says at some point. Yeah. There is no controller. It's just going. Well, at one point I thought that this was maybe just an ancient protocol. Oh, okay. That they had maybe figured out how to trigger, or maybe it had triggered automatically based on some condition, and they were just, whoever they was, they were just taking credit for it so that they could manipulate people. Like, the station is that old, and that creepy thing in the middle of Hollowtown is just doing whatever. Like, (laughs) uh, it briefly became a horror story. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, So, like, the idea that maybe this plot was not, like, necessarily protags versus antagonists, but might instead have been protagonists versus, like, kind of nature is a a type of plot structure. And in a way, it kind of was, even though, even though the end of Triad were the villains, like I said, they were sort of moved, but kind of was more protagonist versus nature. Yeah. Or ancient technology. Yeah, like, they kind of, they're kind of in similar buckets structurally, but but yeah, like, that just made it so much more, instead of somebody driving around this tiny, stupid little car through the galaxy and, like, pew-pewing at stars, like, I don't know, it, this just felt like it had more gravitas Pun kind of intended, because it did sort of rely on Talos and Trollis' gravity to function. (laughs) Oh, that's the other thing. I felt like, besides even the radionics thing, I felt like there were a lot of possibilities for how they were going to solve this. Because if they could have gotten to the repulsors on Talos or Trollis, just move one of them out of position with those repulsor engines, and then Centerpoint doesn't have enough gravitic energy, or however they call it, to fire the thing. And then we see what happens. You know? Yeah. With the Sun Crusher, it's like, what are you going to do with that thing? Black hole. Drop it into a black hole. Squeeze yourself into a proton torpedo tube. Me- Notice the message tube. Message tube. And then launch yourself out into the universe with a bunch of broken bones. Uh... Anyway. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> next up, we'll be discussing the next short story in Tales from Jabba's Palace. Of the Day's Annoyances... Bid Fortuna's Tale, written by M. Shane Bell. You can look forward to that coming out on November 19th. Thanks to Thomas for editing. 
And thanks to Crystal for coming on this crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com and you can follow us on the website formerly known as Twitter at tk331podcast. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend or a family member about it or, I don't know, your worst enemy. Whatever. If you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast reviewing platform of your choice. I don't care. Just put it out there. Write about it on your blog. Blogs still exist anymore? Yes. I don't know. I still write a blog. Well, I mean, you write articles as part of a blog. Yes. It doesn't feel like a blog. It feels more like a website. Okay. But I don't know. I don't know anything about modern day internet at this point. Fair. And now here it is, your motto of Star Wars. Anakin closed his eyes once more and held his palm over the keypad. Yes. Yes. That was it. Starting from the bottom right and moving clockwise, he pressed each of the corner buttons in turn. Each turned from orange to a reassuring purple as he pressed it. He paused only for a moment, just before he pushed in the last one. Was this such a good idea? He was going to get in trouble for this. He knew that much. But would it be so much trouble that it wouldn't be worth it? No. He had to do it. There was no turning back now. He pushed in the last orange button. It turned to purple, and suddenly the chiming noise was louder and higher pitched. There was a low pitch hum from behind Anakin, and he turned around. A section of the floor was sliding away. For a moment, he wondered if he had been wrong about trapdoors. But then a whole complicated console rose slowly up out of the floor, a strange-looking control panel, all in the same silver stuff as the chamber itself, in front of a stranger-looking little seat that looked as if it were intended for a being that bent in different places from a human. Hopping with excitement, all doubts forgotten, Anakin sat down in the odd little chair and did not even notice that it was adapting itself to his body, reforming itself, lifting him up and moving him forward so he would be able to reach the controls more comfortably. He stared at the instruments for a full minute, then extended his arms and spread his fingers out as far as they would go. He shut his eyes and reached out into the intricately, beautifully complicated universe of switches and paths and controls and linkages behind the knobs and levers and dials that covered the control panel. Power ratings, capacitance stowage, vernier control, targeting subsystems, safety overrides, shielding constraints, thrust balancing, what they all were, what they all meant, how they all worked and worked together, all of it flowed into him, as if the ancient machines were speaking to him, telling him their story. He knew it all. He knew it all now.